0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Comics and Graphic Novels, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Woke, a host of the channel, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Amy Mathewson about her book, Cartooning China Punch, Power, and Politics in the Victorian Era, published by Rutledge in 2022. Dr. Amy Mathewson has a PhD in history from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London in the UK. Dr. Mathewson is a historian interested in representation through visual and material culture, in particular the ways in which China and Chinese communities were understood by Western nations in the late 19th and 20th centuries, with particular interest in Britain's relationship with China. She's currently teaching history at the University of Iceland and loving it. Cartooning China, Punch, Power, and Politics in the Victorian Era, explores the series of cartoons of China and the Chinese that were published in the popular British satirical magazine Punch over a 60-year period from 1841 to 1901. Filled with political metaphors and racial stereotypes, these illustrations served as a powerful tool in both reflecting and shaping notions and attitudes towards China at a tumultuous time in Sino-British history. A close reading of both the visual and textual satires in Punch reveals how a section of British society visualized and negotiated with China, as well as Britain's position in the global community. By contextualizing Punch's cartoons within the broader frameworks of British socio-cultural and political discourse, Dr. Mathewson engages in a critical inquiry of popular culture and its engagements with race, geopolitical propaganda, and public consciousness. This book will interest scholars and researchers of cultural studies, political history and empire, Chinese studies, popular culture, Victoriana, as well as media studies and comics-based research. Dr. Matthewson argues that, and I quote, Punch did not create new visions of the Chinese. Rather, they used familiar tropes to provide its readers with a sense of reassurance and stability in an ever-changing and uncertain world of imperialism, global capitalism, and immigration. These caricatures signified a way to classify and understand, thereby rendering people, places, and objects less frightening and threatening. In this interview, Dr. Mathewson discusses the gentleman imperialist as illustrator and or editor, double topicality cartoons, and the voices we don't hear in popular media from the past. All right, Dr. Amy Mathewson, welcome to the show. Amy, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling listeners about your academic background and how you developed this topic?
1: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, I came to history um, of Sino-British relations almost by accident. Um, I originally wanted to pursue a PhD in Victorian literature, um, and I changed my major to history in my third year um, as an undergraduate um, student at the university of British Columbia in Canada. And I was absolutely fascinated by, um, human interactions, but human interactions through, through the centuries. And I suppose I was trying to understand, um, the complexities of factors that determine so much in a person's life. So their gender, their race, their socioeconomic positions, for, for examples. And looking back, um, I think I, I perhaps very foolishly thought that history would provide me with this very simple answer to these very complicated questions. Um, so I switched my field um, and I started to kind of question more things more broadly. So a, a lot of what I'm interested in is where is knowledge coming from? Who creates it? Who constructs it? How is it disseminated? Um, how do we think we know the things that we think we know? Um, so then I came across these cartoons um depicting Britain's engagement with China in the late nineteenth century. and any anybody familiar with this time period knows that this was a time period between um that was that was highly contentious between the two countries. And so I was curious to know, um how do these seemingly um jocular images, reflect the brutality of war. Are they? Are they trying to dispel anxieties? Are they trying to make a point? What are they trying to say? Um, And so this is how I started to embark on, on this particular research.
0: Your story is both unique and a very relatable journey. <laughs> um, so it's actually really easy, I think, to forget how completely different Victorian sensibilities were. And could you highlight for us some of those significant features of center British relations during the Victorian era, and uh, how this could put cartooning China into context? Yes, I mean that's it's a huge question. Um, I, 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 I was, I was thinking,
1: you know, where do I begin? So, I I think um, just to contextualize things, I'm going to take you to the 18th century, um, where China had a a system in place to regulate um, and restrict the conduct of trade with Western traders. Um, So, they could only, um, the Western traders could only live in um, the southern port of China, a place called Guangzhou. Um, Back then, it was called Canton. They couldn't bring their families. Um, and they can only remain for a few months of the year. But regardless of these restrictions, trade flourished, Um, commodities such as silk, porcelain, um, and especially tea. And as the British demand for tea increased by the end of the 18th century, the Chinese uh, on their part, they weren't particularly interested in anything that the the British could offer. Um, And so Britain started to see a drain of silver And they started to think about what can we offer the Chinese in return? And what they found was opium. So it was opium that was grown in India. It was um, shipped to China. And um, this meant that by the 1830s, the consumption of opium in China was rampant. And it affected the military. Um, And it also caused this massive outflow of silver. So... This all resulted in the first Opium War, which was from 1839 to 1842, in which Britain went to war with China to legalize the trade and China was fighting to try and eliminate. Um, There was acknowledgement that Britain was fighting an unjust and dishonorable war. Um, Britain won the war as things were still not settled to their satisfaction. So a second Opium War ensued from 1856 to 1860. And what I found particularly interesting um, in Punch was the narrative in the magazine in the first Opium War was very sympathetic to China. Um, And it was by the end of the second Opium War. So we're seeing um, a shift in perceptions from 1860. Um, and while the images itself changed relatively little, there, the the familiar tropes continued to be used. Then the corresponding narrative was, was very negative um, from that point. And this, of course, coincided with general sentiments um, of China at the time that was found in wider popular culture in Britain, such as um other books and photographs, theater, and um, other periodical presses.
0: That is a massive topic. Sorry to put you in the spotlight, but I think you did an excellent summary. Um, in your book, you, uh, in in the introduction, even, you quote Swiss comics artist uh, Rodolphe Topfer that, uh, and I quote, what reminds us instantly, completely, is much less what resembles the object as what resembles our idea of the object. So how does this concept show up in the cartoons that you examined? I think you started to touch on punch. Could you tell us more about that?
1: Um, yes, absolutely. Isn't, isn't that a wonderful quote? Is it from, I, I absolutely. Absolutely love it. Um, I, I suppose caricature simply defined is an imitation of a person exaggerating particular features to create, either something comical or something grotesque. Um, but what intrigues me about um, Topfer is he was saying that it's an attempt at capturing the essence of a person. And that really got my attention because what does that mean exactly? How does one capture someone's essence um, and is it even possible to reduce everyone down to just a few lines? Um so the radical liberal politician Richard Cobden, for example, he was famous for being extraordinarily difficult to illustrate. and he frustrated a lot of the cartoonists working at Punch because they complained he had no outstanding feature that they could exaggerate. So when he did appear, on the cartoons, um, they had to write somewhere Cobden or Richard Cobden in order for, um, just in case viewers didn't know who they were trying to poke fun at. But so, so, what does that mean? Does that mean that there are people out there without an essence? Um, and it, it really, it really kind of got me thinking. Um, but what I think what Topfer was saying was that all of that doesn't really matter. What matters is our idea the concept of what that person or that object represents. And that's much stronger than, than reality. And it's also tied to our understandings as well as our imaginings. So we've got different layers happening here. Um, Stuart Hall argued that kind of representation was a, a process to produce meaning. And we are always trying to fix those meanings in place, but, but we can't. It's The meaning is is um, very flexible. It's unfixable. Um, And so then trying to look at these cartoons at Punch and looking at the Chinese at a particular time, were these cartoons trying to lighten the mood if we're looking at some of the um, illustrations at a time of um, quite extreme violence. Um, are they dispelling anxieties? They're outwardly comical um, but they're you know illustrating very unsettling events um, and they're they're smoothing over the horri- horrifying effects of death and destruction and, and atrocities that were being committed. Um, and they also have the tendency to create or reinforce stereotypes and stereotypes. Are extremely hard to break once settled in the popular imagination. Um, education, of course, is handy in trying to remedy this, but um, the state of China studies in the UK specifically is not especially optimistic. Um, Professor Tim Barrett spoke um, at length about this, um, so you could. Um, he's he's written um, it, he he's written an article, but it's also um, in a seminar series that he gave at um, Cambridge. And his article is titled China in British Education, um, and he traces the pattern of failure in China studies well um, from the 19th century. So he gives quite a good glimpse of um, the field of China studies in the UK.
0: And I really appreciate your methodology, paying so much attention to the people behind these things. And you dedicate a, a larger portion of the book exploring the people behind the content of punch. I was shocked to see William Maypeace Thackeray illustrates also, <laughs> it took me a few minutes to be like, really? Um, among, among many other examples. Um, and who do you think are the best examples of these personalities influencing? the printed content.
1: That's an excellent question. Um, each of the editors set their own tone to the magazine. So um, I'd be hard pressed to decide on the the editor that um, put their stamp that lingered on for decades after the editor had left. I suppose for me the um, it was the images that actually captivated me and and for many in the Victorian period it was the images that captivated them. As well. So, John Tenniel, for example, um, I think a lot of people may know him as the original artist for Alice in Wonderland. Um, And he was the chief cartoonist at Punch. And um, interestingly, he declared himself to have absolutely no interest in politics whatsoever. And yet, some of his political cartoons were the most politically charged. Um, So, as an example, his 1857 cartoon that was um entitled the the British lion's vengeance on the Bengal Tiger. It's a response to the rebellion that was happening in India. Um, and it's a very powerful depiction as well. It shows this British lion kind of emerging from, from the fields and pouncing on a Bengal tiger who's about to rip apart a, a kind of a young woman clutching a baby. And it was it was extremely it's an extremely powerful image in The Illustrated London News commented on the popularity of this image by saying that every Victorian household had one. Um, so it just kind of tested it's a testament to the popularity of these cartoons um and the process of coming up with the cartoons now that's really interesting because every Wednesday the writers, the editor and the cartoonists would gather together, have a meal and talk about the hottest topics of the day. What merited what they would call a large cut, so a full-page cartoon, and it had to be the, the 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 hottest topic. And they would discuss ways in which to clearly convey the message that they want their readers to understand through the images that the artist would be <laughs> burdened to create. Um, and I can only imagine how how difficult that would be. But I also envision a room full of men shouting ideas on topics of what it is that they want their topic to be illustrated. They think that their ideas are the, are the best. Um, Patrick Leary's book, um, The Punch Brotherhood, does an excellent job in conveying the sense of um, people all talking at once and all trying to shout and compete for their ideas to be heard. Um but it was Tenniel who exerted a strong influence over the um, kind of the cartooning direction, John Leach before him, George de Maurier, Lindley Sanborn. then um, they created these images that um, certainly
0: contributed to the success of the magazine. And when we're talking about this uh, group of men behind these uh, characters and cartooning, uh, you mentioned this notion of respectability and, I quote, the gentleman imperialist um, as being strong forces in cartooning. Could you describe to the audience how these show up in Punch's cartoons, either abstractly or literally embodied in the cartoon?
1: Wow, that's a great question. And I I was thinking about ways of of kind of breaking down the question. So (laughs) so what makes a gentleman, I suppose, or or what makes a gentleman in the late 19th century English imagination, I think would be uh, um, kind of more accurate. It's really complicated. Um, Perhaps it's one of those concepts that's impossible to describe, but you just know one when you see one um and it was it, i think it was mo- it was much more than just class categorization um there was there was an, a moral component to being a victorian gentleman um the art critic john ruskin described a gentleman as someone perfectly bred with gentleness sympathy someone with a kind disposition and a very fine imagination. So there was much debate on what does that mean exactly? Um, And there's a wonderful satirical television um, show called Porterhouse Blues. Now, this is dated um, from 1987. It's um, free on YouTube if anyone's interested in seeing it. It's rather dated, but the central character is a man named Scullion, he was head porter at a fictitious college in Cambridge, and he had his own idea of what constituted a gentleman. And it was someone of a particular class who was educated in um, kind of these elite public schools. And um, in this satirical comedy, it's somebody with a dubious char- character. Um, so again, you've got all these different notions of what constitutes a gentleman um, and, and perhaps because of all the contradictions that are found in Victorian literature, the definition is maybe it was a self-reflective process that people were trying to come up with what it what, what it meant. Um, for Punch, who was a gentleman at the magazine? I mean, if, if we take the moral component, one could essentially argue that Douglas Gerald um, he was relentless on his attacks on various institutions, and he comp- continued his campaign against a host of British social ills and poverty, um, the appalling working conditions of impoverished seamstresses, for example. But he certainly wasn't gentle. He was not gentle. He was not you know, what one would immediately think of a very soft, kind disposition. He was known as the wasp because of his sting and his radical politics really antagonized his colleagues, William Thackeray being one who was so outraged that he threatened to leave. Um, More broadly, these men were society men and they were actively participating in the imperial project. So the messages that they conveyed in regards to Britain's kind of wider geopolitical position and more relevant, um, the position they took with China um, was imperialist in in essentially what what it was that they've decided from from the certainly by the, the 1850s and certainly by the end of the Second Opium War. Um, but they did so in a very sanitized way. The political cartoons from previous um, century was scurrilous in content. Mark Lemon, the first editor of Punch, made sure that the fun. Was very sanitized. It, it evoked something clean for the um, British public to enjoy. Um, so I, bit, so I get. I suppose I'm going to worm my way out of this very complicated question and say, you know, punch the mascot. Um, punch as as a magazine, as an entity, um, was a gentleman, um, and he certainly coincided with imperialist sentiments.
0: All right. Thank you. I, I think you, you touched on a lot of really important factors there. And I'd like to build on this because you're mentioning also the sanitized images. And in your book, you also say, and I'm going to, to quote you directly, the magazine's cartoons with their razor-sharp humor often cut both ways, and it can be difficult to discern, discern exactly who is the target of the joke and who receives sympathy. Furthermore, the word "cut" accurately reflects the broader environment in which these cartoons arose, and this is a very interesting tightrope for people to try to walk. Can you explain a bit more, in addition to the sanitization, why this ambiguity was essential in the case of uh, China?
1: Mm, it was. Um, I mean, I think the this kind of double topicality cartoon, which was um, what Punch was um, so famous for. It was was really fascinating um, because the message was very clear, although they would be tackling um, two very different topics, sometimes of events happening in two very separate countries with very different political situations. And they they illustrated what was happening in such a way that the audience could immediately understand, um, because like all jokes, if you have to stop and explain the joke, then the joke is lost. So... um, these Wednesday dinners, um, I suppose are really important. It, it was a gathering. the men came together. they um, would choose the hottest topic of the day um that the headlines in the press in particular The Times newspaper and they would they would gravitate towards these topics because they wanted something that was in the Forefront of the public um, consciousness, public imagination. Um, and by focusing on these kind of the hottest, hottest topics of the day, the message in the cartoon would be familiar to a very wide audience. um but it could be lost on the modern day audience um because you know, topics changed, events changed. Um so i I just think it was just very brilliantly done in terms of. Um, what it was. Did they mean for it to be ambiguous? I'm not sure. They were very careful that their message would be clearly conveyed. So perhaps that ambiguity is um, less so what their intentions were and more so how the audience is now reading it. Um, But they they
0: were just very, very witty and very well done. And could I ask you to uh, go back and define that double topicality cartoon? I thought that was a really interesting concept,
1: yes. so it would be two things happening at once. So if there was something happening in China, um let's say the Qing court um fled and they've left. But there's also, you know, something happening in South Africa. They would take the event in South Africa if there was someone fleeing in South Africa and someone fleeing in China, and they would put the two together and make one comment on. But I mean, these are very different political situations that are happening, and yet they've they've combined everything so that um it it looks like one topic, but actually it's two topics that are merging together
0: and uh what is your process sorry i'm just i, I i'm loving your answers and i want to poke a little bit more at that um what's your process as a contemporary uh, or a today's historian recovering or reconstructing those contemporary references that they must be so diverse and in some cases completely disjointed
1: Uh the, the double topicality i mean it was It's interesting because essentially what that um, encouraged me to do was not just know my topic area, which is China, but to also dig into global politics um, and look at different countries because Punch was referring to these different countries. And in order to really fully understand what it was that they were trying to say I needed to understand what was happening at the time. So it did actually um, um, expand my scope in order to understand the cartoons. But it gave me, a, um, I think, kind of a wider and richer understanding of
0: the Victorian world and, and I suppose, the, the British Empire more broadly. It really does bring the whole empire into scope in that situation. So in your conclusion, you say that the negative representations of China were therefore important in the production of both a British identity as well as a superior national identity. Could you speak a little bit more about that and if there's any legacy of these representations today? Mm,
1: Thank you. That's such a great question. I I need to refer to Professor Gregory Lee, um, who's at St Andrews, and he's his research explores exactly this. So he's interested in kind of the legacy of historic representation on Chinese communities today. Um, he wrote um, a, an article on um, post-colonial politics. Is the name of the journal um, hashtag Chinese virus the long racism that lurks behind COVID nineteen. So he was looking at some of the attacks and some of the um, um, like hate that was directed for anybody who looked Chinese um, during the COVID pandemic, and he looked at the media outlets' um, chosen keywords and how they chose to represent the virus and in the Western world, and harkened it back to a lot of the images and keywords that were happening in the Victorian press and where did these words come like they're so familiar to us we all we all know these tropes and these stereotypes but where do we know this and where how did they come about and so he's his article kind of traces that and i find that endlessly fascinating because it shows um how relevant it still continues to be these ideas and these concepts and how hard it is to try and dislodge something that's so firmly embedded in our what we think is our understanding of a community. Um, And of course, things are a lot more complicated. Um, The the Victorian streets didn't have these large Asian communities where they they do now. So there's there's a lot more um, Asian faces, as one would say, uh, on the streets. But then who are Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, Vietnamese? And um, How are we identifying? Are we marked by ethnicity or are we marked by nationality? Does everything come down just to appearances and physical traits? Um, What does it mean to be British-Chinese or is it Chinese-British? And how do we define Chineseness in this day and age? So it's all these types of themes that I'm constantly exploring and and I'm, I'm very curious about the historic links and how
0: they are manifesting in today's societies. And uh, in your book, I really appreciated the level of transparency and reflection when you wrote that, uh, and I'm going to quote you here, during the course of this research, I have been unable to find the voice of an everyday Chinese person during the Victorian era in order to get a sense of the ways in which these images translated into treatment of the Chinese community living in Britain. That's such an excellent point. How did that influence your work? I I was, to be be very frank,
1: I was disappointed that I couldn't, find one one um, diary letter. So something um, the earliest kind of Chinese voice experience in Britain um, came to me in the form of Laosure. So Laoscher was a, a writer. he was known for his satirical work between 1924 and 1929 he came to London. He taught Chinese at what is now the School of Oriental and African Studies, the University of London. And his experience was articulated in um, a book called Mr. Ma and Son. It's translated, um, so it reaches a wide audience. But it is a novel, and it's not an autobiography. But it does draw on his experiences living and working in 1920s London. So Anne Wichard has written about this in her book, Laosher in London. Um, And another Chinese voice is that of Zhang Yi, um, so he came to London. He also taught Chinese, also at the same university. Um, and he came in the 1930s. And he's known for what was a quite popular books called the Silent Traveler books. Um, he was a writer, he was a poet, he was an artist, and he moved in British intellectual circles. Um, there's a really excellent book that's just come out called Zhang Yi and His Circle. It's an edited volume by Paul Bevan and Wichard and, and Da Jung. So as you may have noted though, these are works dated the early 20th century. My period is the late 19th century. Um, so does that mean that the experiences were the same? Were they similar? These are educated Chinese men coming to London. Um, some of the Chinese that were coming in the late 19th century were transient um, seamen who may have been illiterate. So the the situation was really different. Also, the environment was different. Britain was recovering from the First World War. Um, there was the negative impacts of the Great Depression. Um, so that would have affected labor. That would have affected social um, kind of social dynamics. So. But that's the closest thing I could I could find
0: uh, the earliest voices I could find, which is um, yeah, it, it, I was disappointed. Well, that's so interesting, uh, but yeah, I can understand the the disappointment, and and thank you for modeling that. <laughs> um, historians are definitely allowed to be disappointed with uh, the results we find, right? Um, and could you please tell us, uh, what projects are you working on now? Are you excited about anything? Looking forward to anything?
1: Um, yeah. So I'm. <clears throat> I've been involved in a few public engagement activities. I, I I find them to be great fun. Um. So in in June, the British Museum had a China's Hidden Century. There was a conference. Um, and I looked at the intrepid Victorian um traveler Isabella Bird and her. Of relationship with her translators and guides while she was in China, um, so that that there's a forthcoming book that's coming out um, December 2024. Um, I'm also co-writing a chapter with um, Professor Tim Barrett, and we'll be looking again at individual scholars in the late 18th and 19th centuries who translated Chinese texts into English, um, and that volume should be coming out. Um, either next year or the year after. Um, I'm currently working with the Royal Asiatic Society. We co-curated the society's um, bicentenary exhibition. So that opening night was a few weeks ago um, at the Brunei Gallery. For anybody who's in London, do come see. It's on till the 15th of December. Um, And we're finishing a booklet to correspond um, with the exhibition. Um, And my kind of bigger, wider, I guess, individual project is looking at representations of Chineseness on the Victorian stage. So I want to look at, um, Aladdin pantomime and, um, I'm just at the very initial stages of that and having kind of a lot of fun reading through the various translations of one thousand and one nights and Aladdin and it's set in China, but it's not a Chinese book and kind of looking at all the the complexities within that. That's it's having a lot of
0: fun doing that. Fascinating. Stuff to look forward to. Sounds great. Well, uh, Dr. Matthewson, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It was lovely to talk with you today, and we're looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank you.